Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. Today we're going to be recalling the most amazing chapter in all of human history, a series of events that would permanently alter human beings as a species, redefine our role in the universe, and reshape the way we look at each other, as well as our own planet. We're going to be breaking this epic story of space history into three episodes. Historians refer to this period as the space race, but it was much more than a competition between nations. It took place at a time when the inhabitants of our planet were either fighting world wars or teetering on the brink of mutually assured destruction in the most brutal and barbaric century in human history. It's a story of superpowers vying for world domination, competing for the ultimate cosmic high ground. It's a story of scientists desperately working to make science fiction into science fact and achieving just that. And it's also a story of brave pilots and explorers constantly facing the threat of death as they sailed out into the dark, silent cosmic ocean. They risked their lives and the very reputation of their own nations on a dangerous and volatile gamble because they were willing to do literally anything in order to be first, to be pioneers who stepped out where no human being had yet treaded and saw things that human eyes had never beheld. After hundreds of years of astronomy, human beings would no longer see the cosmos merely through telescopes. They would hold it in the palm of their hands. Yet it's very possible that not a single one of them would have gone on the journey if not for the dedicated efforts of a single engineer, a mysterious, obsessive, enigmatic man whose name was totally unknown to the people of Earth until after his death. The work of one man changed everything for the entire planet Earth. His name was Sergei Pavlovich Korolyov born in the Ukraine roughly three years after the famous Wright brothers in the United States, designed and flew the first controlled, powered, heavier-than-air craft, what we think of today as the modern airplane. This was a machine that would fascinate Korolyov from early childhood, but in adulthood, it was only a matter of time before he ascended towards building different, more powerful vehicles that could traverse far greater distances and far beyond any of his wildest childhood dreams. Six years before Korolyov was born, author H.G. Wells published a novel titled The First Men in the Moon, a story about an eccentric scientist and a businessman who took a steel sphere on a voyage to the Earth's moon, where they encountered an advanced civilization of insect-like creatures, aliens called the Selenites. In the fictional story, the protagonist on the space journey poses a question, quote, what is this spirit in man that urges him forever to depart from happiness and security, to toil, to place himself in danger, even to risk a reasonable certainty of death? It dawned on me, up there in the moon, as a thing that I ought always to have known, that man is not simply to go about being safe and comfortable and well-fed and amused. Against his interest, against his happiness, he is constantly being driven to do unreasonable things. 
Some force, not himself, impels him, and go he must. At the time, it would have been rather generous to use the term science fiction to describe H.G. Wells' work. It was more like science fantasy. And yet, the musings of the fictional book's protagonist touch on a fundamental piece of human truth. Human beings are indeed driven to explore, even if it means doing unreasonable things or risking death. H.G. Wells' work was deeply prophetic, and Korolyov proved to be just such a man. As a young child, Korolyov was considered stubborn, a frequent victim of bullying, with few friends. His academic performance in areas like mathematics earned him the good graces of his teachers and the resentment of his classmates. At age 17, he designed and built a glider, which he would later fly in competitions. In fact, he once suffered two broken ribs during a botched landing of one of his own gliders. He went on to study aviation at the Kiev Polytechnic Institute. He later earned a pilot's license and found himself wondering just what it was that existed beyond the clouds, beyond the pale blue sky, where the air became so thin, surely no plane could stay aloft. Perhaps, just perhaps, there was a way to get up there. In the 1930s, Korolyov became the deputy chief of the Jet Propulsion Research Institute, personally overseeing a variety of different areas of development, including the construction of primitive rockets. In 1934, he published a paper titled Rocket Flight in the Stratosphere. For a fleeting moment, it appeared that Korolyov was destined for a long and successful career. But in 1938, he was arrested by the Soviet Union's secret police. He stood accused of deliberately trying to obstruct research at the Institute. There were some who thought his interest in the theoretical notion of spaceflight meant that he had no real interest in making missiles and jet aircraft. Korolyov was tortured mercilessly at KGB headquarters in Moscow to extract a false confession and confess he did. After all, if he didn't confess, the lives of his wife and daughter might be in danger. If nothing else, his false confession could protect them. This was daily life in one of the most murderous periods in the history of the Soviet Union, the Great Purge. At the time, some high-ranking Communist Party members had become distrustful of Joseph Stalin and appeared less than loyal to him. The Purge itself was a wanton campaign of mass murder that sought to wipe out not only political opposition to Stalin, but to discourage anyone and everyone from even thinking of such disloyalty. As the purge began, its victims were politicians, government workers, and military leaders. By the end, authorities were rounding up teachers, artists, and scientists. Well over half a million Soviet citizens were executed at a rate of roughly 1,000 executions a day. Most historians say that the Soviet secret police covered their tracks so well that the real number of victims was likely far higher. And for all those that died, far more were taken prisoner and sent to work camps. At that time in history, sometimes all it took was a single accusation from a co-worker or a neighbor. Korolyov, who had always struggled to make friends, first with his classmates and later with his co-workers, found himself a victim of the Great Purge. A professional rival had accused Korolyov of sabotaging work at the Institute. 
and that was all it took. Korolyov was not executed, though. Instead, he found himself in a Siberian labor camp. Like most gulags in the Soviet Union, the conditions in the camp led to the death of many prisoners. Korolyov was beaten, suffered broken bones, and lost most of his teeth due to scurvy. It was to be the darkest hour of his life, but it wasn't the end of his story. Ironically, work at Korolyov's old research institute quickly fell into disrepair in his absence. He had been an integral part of their team and a dedicated leader. His absence sent back their work by years, allowing another nation to take the lead in rocket development. As it turned out, the Soviet Union wasn't the only country on Earth experiencing political upheaval at this time. In 1937, half a world away, Germany's Nazi party gave an impressive promotion to a young engineer in an amateur rocket club. The young man's name was Werner von Braun, and at age 25, he suddenly found himself with more than 400 people working underneath him as he was appointed technical director of a new research center that sought to develop experimental rockets. Von Braun was born into a wealthy family. As a small child, an experiment with some fireworks and small rockets sent the young Von Braun's tiny red wagon hurtling through the streets of downtown Berlin. The prospect of using rockets for spaceflight became an obsession of his, and as early as age 18, he remarked to people that one day he planned on personally traveling to the moon. It wasn't a joke or a naive childhood fantasy. This teenager was serious. Consider for a moment the boldness of such a claim. To travel all around the world along the Earth's equator is a journey of some 25,000 miles, give or take. To travel to the moon is to leave the Earth's atmosphere and venture more than 200,000 miles away from our planet. And it's not a stationary target. Moving at about 2,000 miles per hour, the moon orbits the Earth once every 29 days. Yet von Braun dared to believe that he could make this journey a reality, and all at a time when no human being had even ventured into space. The Treaty of Versailles, which brought about the end of World War I in 1919, had stripped Germany of much of its political and military power. Germany was severely restricted from developing any serious form of artillery, yet there was no stipulation in the treaty against developing rockets. This was the loophole that the German military hoped to exploit. Von Braun was happy to help, as it ultimately meant he could continue his life's passion, rocketry. Along with his fellow scientists and engineers, he stood on the precipice of developing rockets that might reach space and realize his dream. By 1937, he applied for a membership in the Nazi party. Eighteen months later, Von Braun received an officer's commission in the SS, which would soon become one of the most powerful arms of the German Nazi party. Years later, Von Braun would claim that he only donned his SS uniform once, but a fellow SS officer with whom he worked would later claim that Von Braun proudly wore it regularly. In the spring of 1939, Chancellor Adolf Hitler himself met with the young Von Braun to observe engine tests on a new rocket. The precocious young engineer explained the physics of how the new weapon would work, but Hitler merely frowned, shaking his head as he walked away from the meeting. Hitler was unconvinced. Yet there were many in the Nazi party who were convinced, 
and invested in building a massive complex on a remote island on a patch of land near the Baltic Sea, Pinamund. The top-secret installation had metallurgy shops, wind tunnels to test aerodynamics, and, of course, launch pads. The Nazi party was building an empire, a 1,000-year Reich, and superweapons would be a crucial asset to that empire. Later that year, Nazi Germany invaded Poland, and World War II officially began. The new rockets being created at Pinamund were far different than the small fireworks von Braun had played with as a child. Liquid propellant would be used instead of gunpowder, allowing the rocket to be accelerated and decelerated based on how much fuel was allowed through the nozzle. Von Braun knew full well that this was the kind of rocket whose reach could extend outside the atmosphere. It was Sergei Korolyov who had built the Soviet Union's first liquid-propelled rocket, almost certainly with the goal of spaceflight in mind. But with Korolyov now in prison, von Braun had very little foreign competition, and von Braun's liquid-propelled rocket would be far more advanced than anything ever seen before. These new German rockets had a combustion chamber that would direct a controlled explosion outwards and fins at the bottom that would allow for a stable flight. A large fuel tank would supply the liquid propellant. An oxidizer would be on board, because once the rocket flew to the upper reaches of the atmosphere, there would be no nitrogen or oxygen to serve as an agent for the combustion. Finally, a guidance system in the nose cone would give instructions to the steering mechanism below to help the rocket navigate over vast distances. And so von Braun and his team went to work building this 45-foot-tall rocket called the A-4. But the liquid propellant proved to be extremely volatile. The controlled explosion inside the rocket wasn't always so well controlled. The first tests often ended in disaster, exploding on the launch pad in a cloud of orange flames and smoke. But finally, on one clear afternoon, an A-4's engine roared to life, spouting flames out the bottom and shooting up into the air. Looking through a pair of binoculars and craning his neck to follow the rocket upwards, with beads of sweat rolling down his forehead, von Braun hoped and prayed that he wouldn't see another fireball explode in the sky. Soaring to an altitude of over 50 miles above the Earth, the A-4 skimmed the edge of outer space. Smiling to himself, von Braun realized that his childhood dreams were no longer just dreams anymore. They were becoming a reality. The space age was now slowly unfolding. But the A-4 was also a weapon capable of traversing the boundaries of nations and carrying explosives more than 200 miles, far enough to hit neighboring England. Hitler himself finally saw film footage of A-4 launches on a projector screen, and his previous skepticism vanished. He demanded mass production of 2,000 such rockets a month. In the following years, Allied forces would take notice of the rocket complex at Pinamund and the work that was taking place there. They had aerial reconnaissance photos and knew of its importance. A summer bombing raid by the British Royal Air Force dropped over 1,000 tons of explosives on the area. Miraculously, most of von Braun's team remained intact, and the facility could be repaired, but von Braun's engine designer, Walter Thiel, was killed, delaying work on the A-4 even further. Allied bombings of targets inside Germany were becoming increasingly more common, so Nazi propagandists renamed the A-4 rocket. Velges Waffen 
the Vengeance Weapon, or V-2. The mass production of V-2 missiles would move forward, not at Pinamund, but in a place where the military hardware could be protected from Allied bombings. In the Hartz Mountains, deep inside some abandoned mine shafts, a facility called Middlework was constructed. Tens of thousands of workers from a nearby concentration camp were made slaves, tasked with assembling von Braun's massive rockets in the cold, damp, dark underground of a hidden factory. Many historians say that von Braun himself was well aware of the slave labor being used on his project, and that he simply didn't care. He would later say that even if he and his colleagues had resigned, the prisoners could not have been freed. The V-2 rocket earned a unique distinction in human history, a weapon that killed more people in the construction process than it did when it was used in war. Many years later, when pressed on the issue in an interview, von Braun said, Remember, I was a very young man in Germany, and I was so busy, but in retrospect, I guess sometimes I wonder whether I should have worried a little more about some of these other aspects of my work. In 1944, V-2 rockets began appearing in the skies over London, dropping their cargo of explosives in a murderous rain of fire. Thunderous sonic booms clapped in the sky, harbingers of the fiery impact of V-2 rockets as they came hurtling through the upper atmosphere, going faster than the speed of sound. More British civilians died from V-2 rockets than all the casualties in the September 11th terrorist attacks. But as powerful as the new rockets were, they did not turn the tide of World War II. British and other Allied aircraft continued their bombing raids, and troops from the Soviet Union slowly began closing in on Germany and von Braun's Pinamund Research Facility. Von Braun and his team of engineers could now hear the distant echoes of Soviet artillery, and they knew it was only a matter of time before they might be taken prisoner. Nazi Germany's high command fell into disarray as they faced a crushing and inevitable defeat. Von Braun's desk was suddenly flooded with conflicting messages from Berlin. Some messages ordered von Braun and his team to flee the area before the Soviets arrived. If they stayed there, the order threatened death by firing squad. Yet other messages told him and his team to stay in Pinamund. If they fled, they would be subject to execution by firing squad. Worse yet, von Braun now feared that his boss, the brutal SS general Hans Kammler, might choose to execute all the engineers and scientists at the facility, rather than allowing them to all be captured by the Soviet Union. Their window of opportunity to escape Pinamund was rapidly closing. After taking a vote, von Braun and his team agreed that they would try to move west in the hopes of surrendering to the United States. They would surely be given better treatment by American forces than Soviet ones. Under von Braun's leadership, the evacuation was carefully and orderly organized. Equipment and rocket components were covered in tarps and placed in the back of trucks. Technical documents were color-coded and organized before being boxed up. Under the cover of darkness, the team fled Pinamund, never to return. Initially, they relocated to Middlework, hiding in the underground with the slaves. But they knew they would have to move further west if they had any chance of surrendering to the Americans. It was sometime after midnight during their travels west when von Braun found himself on the Autobahn Highway in Germany, his chauffeur in the driver's seat. 
both men physically and mentally exhausted. The road stretched out before them, with only the car's headlights and the glow of the moon illuminating their path. Von Braun's driver fell asleep, causing their car to careen off the highway and crash into a ditch. Berlin would fall to Allied forces shortly thereafter. Von Braun awoke in a hospital. He had suffered a complicated fracture to his left arm and shoulder. In a panic, he frantically tried in vain to climb out of his hospital bed, against the wishes of his German nurses. He was told that he was in no condition to travel, but he knew it was only a matter of time before his Nazi superiors, or the Soviet Union, caught up to him and his team. So he demanded to have his arm placed in a cast. With this heavy white plaster cast extending all the way from his shoulder down to his wrist, von Braun limped out of the hospital. He managed to cross the Austrian border later that evening. By then, him and his team weren't far from the American 44th Mountain Division, but von Braun worried that American forces might see them as hostile if his entire team tried to sneak up on them in the middle of the night. And so, von Braun enlisted the help of his brother Magnus. Magnus spoke some English and was able to find an American private and arrange the surrender of Werner von Braun and his entire team. They surrendered to American troops, and the two groups were thrilled to find each other. Von Braun's name had been at the top of a document called The Blacklist, a collective list of scientists and engineers prized by the Allies, and marked for immediate interrogation should they ever be captured. The United States Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency was the forerunner to the American CIA. They took a great interest in all of these men and began something called Operation Paperclip, a plan to transport well over a thousand German scientists and engineers back to the United States in the hopes that their expertise could be employed by the American military. President Harry Truman forbid the agency from recruiting any members of the Nazi party. This was a problem. Many of the engineers weren't merely Nazi party members, but also Nazi party leaders. And the most talented among them, von Braun, was an officer in the SS. The American solution was simple. Bypass President Truman's directive and bleach out any and all evidence of their Nazi affiliations, including evidence of possible war crimes and crimes against humanity. Or, at the very least, whitewash as much of that as possible from the official record. So von Braun and his team found themselves being shipped back to the United States to continue their work under new management. Meanwhile, the Soviet military was scouring Germany desperately for any remaining engineers who knew the secrets of these Nazi superweapons. But von Braun had taken his entire team with him. Meanwhile, the Soviet military was scouring Germany desperately for any remaining engineers who knew the secrets of the Nazi superweapons. But von Braun had taken his entire team with him. The few German engineers captured by the Soviets worked at such low levels, most of them had never even met von Braun. As World War II drew to a close, the United States was now a superpower. They had the atom bomb. And now, working for them, they had the genius who created the deadly V-2 rocket. A V-2 rocket, or something larger, could carry an atom bomb to countless potential targets. It would be a lethal combination. 
If the Soviet Union was to stand any chance of catching up to the United States, there was now only one man left who could help them, Sergei Pavlovich Korolyov, and he was far too brilliant to be left to rot in the gulag. Free at last, after years in different prisons and labor camps, he could finally go back to work. While there weren't many German engineers left behind in Europe, there were plenty of V2 components to be found. In no time at all, Korolyov managed not only to reverse-engineer the V-2 rocket, but to create a far superior version that could travel even further. But there was now a rapidly growing demand to build a rocket that could traverse not merely across the boundaries of nations, but across the boundaries of continents and oceans. An intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM. And it was all but certain that Werner von Braun was back in the United States working on just such a weapon. Korolyov knew that, yet neither new American rockets or new Soviet rockets could produce the thrust needed to travel thousands of miles. Korolyov's solution was simple but bold. Attach four smaller rockets to the side of one large one. With all five rockets burning at once, the vehicle could traverse vast distances. But building one fully functional rocket is difficult enough. Trying to launch five rockets, strapped together, seemed like an act of lunacy. Many of the engineers working under him said that the design would simply never work. The first test launches only seemed to vindicate his critics. Fires broke out inside the rocket. Boosters broke off during its flight. Well after Korolyov had been released from the Gulag, for years he still received anonymous late-night phone calls from the Soviet secret police especially after a rocket failure. Another failure? There are some who think you deserve a medal pinned on your chest. We think you deserve a bullet. Then they would hang up. Finally, in the summer of 1957, Korolyov got his design to work. The fiery rocket rose off the launch pad and traveled a distance of nearly 4,000 miles, a new world record. It was the world's first ICBM. But as impressive as it was, the new R-7 rocket wouldn't be terribly effective to launch nuclear warheads. For one thing, it took an entire day to fuel. In the event of a nuclear war, there simply wouldn't be enough time to get it fueled and launched. Korolyov had been doing the bidding of his militaristic superiors, men dedicated to the Cold War objectives of the Soviet Union but he was well aware that his rocket could be used for a different purpose. A rocket powerful enough to cross oceans and continents would be powerful enough to travel into space. At long last, Korolyov could have a chance to answer his lifelong question. What exactly existed outside the atmosphere? So he convinced his superiors to pursue the goal of launching an artificial satellite into orbit around the Earth. After all, the United States had recently mentioned doing the same thing. It was announced by President Eisenhower's press secretary that the United States was working on a small satellite. The president delegated this task to his press secretary because he simply didn't think that such an announcement warranted any personal appearance on his part. But the Soviet Union Academy of Sciences approved of Korolyov's idea. An instrument known as Object D was constructed weighing roughly a ton, and carrying a wide variety of state-of-the-art scientific instruments. 
Perhaps it would take photographs of the Earth from space, measure the composition of the Earth's upper atmosphere, and evaluate radiation levels in space, among other experiments. Meanwhile, back in the United States, two teams of engineers were competing to build the first American satellite. One team worked for the United States Army, and another worked for the United States Navy. On the Army side were von Braun and his fellow engineers. But much to the chagrin of von Braun, the Navy team was awarded the satellite contract instead. Von Braun had become an American citizen in 1955, but despite his best efforts to conceal his personal history, rumors persisted about von Braun's Nazi past, and his thick accent left no doubts about his national origin. There had even been requests for von Braun to make appearances and testify at war crimes tribunals in the United States. But his employers in the U.S. Army refused to allow it, much to von Braun's relief. A satirical American singer named Tom Lehrer, even publicly and derisively poked fun at Werner von Braun by name in the lyrics of a song he released. Gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. Nazi schmatzi, says Werner von Braun. Some have harsh words for this man of renown, but some think our attitude should be one of gratitude, like the widows and cripples in old London town who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun. You too may be a big hero once you've learned to count backwards to zero. In German and English, I know how to count down, and I'm learning Chinese, says Werner von Braun. In the Soviet Union, Korolyov was facing his own problems. The R-7 rocket, as powerful as it was, simply wouldn't provide enough thrust for the artificial satellite, Object D, that Korolyov had planned to launch. Being second to the United States would make Korolyov's work and his satellite a mere footnote in history, and he would once again be relegated to making weapons of war. There was still a chance, though. Build something else. Anything else. A stripped-down version of Object D. A Prostici Sputnik, or simple satellite. So inside a metal sphere, about the size of a beach ball, they placed two radio transmitters powered by three zinc batteries. There wouldn't be room for much else. Shortly after midnight, in October of 1957, an R-7 rocket roared to life, turning night into day on the barren plains of Kazakhstan. But the R-7 was still a very new and very complex machine. Problems on the rocket started almost immediately. One fuel regulator failed, and one engine nearly shut down. The satellite was lofted into outer space by the narrowest of margins. Thrust more than a hundred miles above the Earth. Korolyov and his engineers then rushed from the launch pad to a nearby radio station, turning their dials to listen for the signal. Breathing a sigh of relief as they turned on their radios, they all cheered and applauded. Sputnik was in orbit. Hurtling around the Earth at thousands of miles per hour, it would circle the globe once every 90 minutes. The Soviet Union had become the first nation in human history to launch an artificial satellite. And amateur radio operators all over the world 
could listen for evidence themselves on two different radio frequencies. Soviet scientists were even able to measure the distortion in the radio signals, allowing them to make the first accurate measurements of the uppermost parts of Earth's atmosphere. This was the sound that shocked the Western world. The doors to the universe itself had been flung open, and the space age had arrived in full swing. Von Braun was furious. Soviet Premier Khrushchev was delighted. The announcement of the satellite changed international politics instantly and forever. Americans no longer saw the Soviet Union as a nation of peasant farmers. The United States had been serene in the assurance that they were technologically superior to their communist foes. Overnight, that confidence had been shattered. Sputnik flowed directly over the United States twice, totally undetected, before the Soviets made their announcement of its existence. For the next few days, the Soviet Union released no photos of the satellite, prompting Americans to wonder just what it looked like. Did it have weapons on board? Did it have cameras on board? Was it monitoring American radio traffic? Western paranoia ran rampant. It was dubbed the Sputnik Crisis, an event so paradigm-shifting in the American consciousness that some considered it a sort of Pearl Harbor in space. Only later was it revealed that Sputnik was just a mere radio transmitter inside a metal sphere. Of course, the reality was that Sputnik itself posed no tangible military threat to the United States. President Eisenhower, himself a former general, knew full well that America had far superior nuclear weapons capabilities. And though U.S. ballistic missiles were smaller than the R-7 rocket, they were far more accurate and reliable. President Eisenhower said, quote, As far as the satellite is, itself is concerned, that doesn't raise my apprehension one iota. Critics charged that the president was taking this all far too lightly, that he was out of touch, perhaps even senile. Nuclear weapons aside, it was undeniable that the Soviet Union now had superior space technology. In fact, by some estimates, the Soviet Union was several years ahead of the United States in space technology. Not only that, but studies showed that the Soviet Union was training two to three times as many scientists and engineers as the United States with each passing year. In the midst of a national panic, many Americans feared that their nation might never catch up to the Soviet Union. There was a renewed investment in the American education system, hoping to raise a whole new generation of scientists and engineers. They would be needed. Then, just a few mere weeks after the shock of Sputnik, the Soviets launched a second satellite into orbit around the Earth. This new satellite carried a passenger aboard, a stray dog named Laika the first living creature to venture into outer space. If the Soviet Union could keep an animal alive in outer space, it was only a matter of time before they would be sending humans too. The Soviet Union once again celebrated. The reality of Laika's flight was much darker, though. On Premier Khrushchev's orders, Korolev had worked hastily to prepare a second satellite to launch in time for the anniversary of the Russian Revolution yet there was not enough time to arrange a plan for the safe return of the canine passenger on board. 
official Soviet press releases said that Laika survived in orbit for a week. But Korolyov and his team were monitoring the dog's vital signs from Earth, and by Laika's third orbit around the planet, just a few hours into the flight, the temperature inside the pressurized metal sphere was rising to over 110 degrees Fahrenheit, and the dog no longer appeared to be breathing. Far more work would have to be done if human beings would ever be sent into space. Even so, Laika's sacrifice showed that living things could survive the rigors of a rocket launch and venture out into the cosmos. America had been embarrassed on the national stage yet again, and the Soviet Union quickly seemed to be leaving them behind. A month after Laika's fateful flight into space, an American Vanguard rocket was fitted with an artificial satellite and erected on a sunny launch pad in Florida. Spectators and journalists eagerly trained their eyes on the rocket, awaiting the countdown. Television cameras were all fixed on the rocket and ready to capture America's comeback in the space race. Suspense in the crowd seemed to build as the clock ticked down. Five, four, three, two, one, liftoff. The rocket's engine roared to life and rose off the launch pad. It rose three feet off the launch pad before teetering over and crashing down onto the pavement. The nation watched in bitter disappointment as the launch pad was enveloped in flames. Ironically, the satellite was the only thing to survive the explosion. Flung out, there it sat, dented on the pavement, its radio transmitter beeping away. There were some who said that von Braun took some perverse pleasure in the disastrous performance of the Vanguard. After all, he knew full well that his own team was far more skilled when it came to rocketry. He should have been awarded the satellite contract, not the Navy. Now, with no more options left, and no more competition in the way, the military finally turned to von Braun to get America's first satellite into outer space. The sooner the better. And so, finally, in January of 1958, the first American satellite, Explorer 1, was launched into orbit atop one of von Braun's new Juno ballistic missiles. Juno was powerful enough and functional enough to loft a small satellite into space, but still far weaker than Korolyov's R-7 rockets. It was soon found that the outside of the Earth's atmosphere, without any gas molecules to stand in the way of the immense amount of radiation coming from the sun, temperatures in direct sunlight were around 250 degrees Fahrenheit. As objects in orbit around the planet pass around the night side of the Earth, temperatures plummet to around minus 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Unlike Sputnik, Explorer 1 had multiple scientific instruments on board and detected something strange in outer space. While it wasn't visible to the naked eye, the planet Earth had two large donut-shaped swaths of radiation surrounding it. The sun was flinging charged particles into outer space. Apparently, the magnetic field which surrounded the Earth was catching these cosmic charged particles. These swaths of radiation were named the Van Allen belts, in honor of University of Iowa scientist James Van Allen, who discovered them. A few months later, President Eisenhower signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act, creating a civilian government space agency, NASA. America needed to pool together all of its intellectual resources. The military rivalry 
between the Army and the Navy teams and the development of America's first satellite had simply been far too costly. But America continued to press on, launching a second satellite called Vanguard 1. But it weighed only about three pounds. Premier Khrushchev jokingly referred to it as the Grapefruit Satellite. America's second satellite weighed more than 100 pounds less than Russia's first. Only one year later, on a late night in 1959, Korolyov was sitting calmly and patiently in a control room monitoring signals from a new craft in deep space. But this craft wasn't a satellite orbiting the Earth. A newly developed rocket allowed Korolyov the chance to accomplish something every bit as historic as the launch of Sputnik. Perhaps even more historic. A voyage to the moon. The unmanned space probe was a primitive metal craft with five antennas protruding from its sides. It was a lunar impactor designed like a man-made meteor to be flung out of the gravity of the Earth and hit its target, the Earth's moon. It sounds like a simple and crude mission, but remember, the moon is a moving target some 240,000 miles away from the Earth. Korolyov and his team had tried the experiment once before and missed by a few thousand miles, their last probe hurtling out into deep space. America had tried and missed by even more, getting only 37,000 miles away from the moon at their closest approach. Shortly after midnight Moscow time, the signals from the probe abruptly stopped. They had hit their target. The team of scientists and engineers erupted in celebration. Korolyov was pleased, and the Soviet Union had become the first nation in history to place a space probe on another world. Upon impact, the probe scattered pennants onto the surface of the moon, with hammer and sickle emblems all over them. The United States was initially skeptical, thinking that perhaps the supposed moon probe might be a hoax. But the probe, upon impact, had released a large cloud of sodium gas, part of its onboard cargo, which would allow it to be detected from telescopes on Earth. This was no hoax. A few weeks later, on the two-year anniversary of the Sputnik launch, the Soviet probe Luna 3 entered deep space. For all of humanity's history, the same side of the moon had been facing towards the Earth. Astronomers had stared at the moon for centuries through telescopes. They knew it had craters and mountain ranges, but no one knew what existed on the far side of the moon until now. Luna 3 returned the first grainy pictures of the far side of the moon, geographically quite different from the near side. The United States had been boasting for months that their spacecraft and satellites had superior guidance systems and navigation systems when compared to Soviet satellites. The Luna probes shattered this myth. Shortly thereafter, the Soviet Union published the first atlas of the far side of the moon, naming almost all geographic features after famous Russian scientists and causing some controversy with the International Astronomical Union. Von Braun was seething with anger. This was his dream. If only he had been awarded the satellite contract and not the U.S. Navy team, he surely could have gotten an American satellite into orbit first. 
With enough funding, he could have even sent a, an unmanned probe to hit the moon first. His lifelong aspiration was finally becoming a reality, but it was being accomplished by his rivals. More than a decade before, he and his team had fled from the echoes of Soviet artillery at Pinamund, depriving the enemy nation of their technological brilliance. Now those same Soviets seemed to be boasting of a new accomplishment in space almost every month. Indeed, they must have had an army of brilliant engineers to compete with his own skill and intellect. It looked as though he would forever lag behind his faceless rivals as they trotted out one new victory after another. But von Braun was determined to campaign for his dream. He contributed to Collier's Magazine in a series titled Man Will Conquer Space Soon. And beautiful color illustrations showed readers that those dreams that had previously been confined to von Braun's own imagination could be real. Elegant rotating space stations with artificial gravity, shuttlecraft landing on the surface of the moon, and armadas of giant spacecraft making voyages to Mars. Suddenly, it wasn't science fiction. It was soon to be science fact. Von Braun knew it was all possible, if only America could place their trust in him. By this point, Von Braun was a national celebrity, albeit a controversial one. He even made television appearances beside lavish models of the spacecraft that he hoped one day to build. But in the shadow of the Soviet Union, Korolyov was a ghost that no one knew, including von Braun. He was never referred to by name. Those who worked with Korolyov knew him only as the chief designer. In memos and official documents, he was referred to only as SP, the initials of his first and middle name. Even many of the engineers who worked with him never knew who he was. The Soviet Union knew just how brilliant Korolyov was and worried that if anyone in the West knew of his vital, singular role in the Russian space program, he might become a target for assassination. The same month that Luna 3 swung around the far side of the moon, a 25-year-old pilot in the Soviet Air Force named Yuri was serving at a remote base in the Arctic Circle, not far from the Norwegian border. The frigid weather, high winds, and unpredictable storms made flying aircraft, a precarious exercise, but the young pilot liked a challenge. The base had some visitors that day, mysterious Soviet recruiting officers. They asked the young pilot if perhaps he might be interested in flying something different. Yuri agreed eagerly, thinking that maybe, just maybe, he would finally get a chance to become a helicopter pilot. Yuri was one of 2,000 candidates interviewed and recruiting officers always asked strange, cryptic questions to the young pilots. One candidate was asked if he would be interested in learning to fly a plane that went much further and faster than any normal airplane. The training was still stranger. There were physical and psychological tests. Candidates were strapped into powerful centrifuges that swung them around in dizzying circles at extremely high rates of speed, creating crushing g-forces that resulted in heavy and painful pressures on their chests, until finally they blacked out. Out of the 2,000 pilots trained, only 200 were selected after the initial tests. From that group, 20 made it into more intensive training, 
by the summer of 1960, less than 10 candidates remained. They were taken to a secret facility, stepping inside, their footsteps echoing through the high ceilings. At long last, they finally beheld the craft that they would be flying in. It had no wings and no propellers. It was a metal cylinder with what looked like a large cannonball sitting on top. There was a tiny round porthole on the side and an antenna atop the cannonball. It was like no flying machine they had ever seen before, and even after triumphing over every rigorous and physically demanding test that they had been through, it was hard for these men in their 20s to understand just how it all would work. Afterwards, the young men were brought into a room where they would wait to meet a man known as the chief designer, a person whose mere presence demanded reverence. They knew very little about the chief designer, other than the fact that it was his brilliance that had made Sputnik a reality. One of the Soviet pilots described the experience of meeting the mysterious chief in the following words, quote, I was looking out the window when he arrived, stepping out of a black limousine. He was taller than average, but I could not see his face. He always wore the collar of his dark blue overcoat, turned up, and the brim of his hat pulled down. Sit down, my little eagles, he said as he strode into the room where we were waiting. He glanced down a list of our names and called us in alphabetical order to introduce ourselves briefly and talk about our flying careers. He had the reputation of being a man of the highest integrity, but also of being extremely demanding. Everyone around him was on tenterhooks, afraid of making a wrong move and invoking his wrath. He was treated like a god. One by one, the nervous candidates stepped forward. The chief designer listened quietly. Among the pilots was the young Yuri, the same fighter pilot who had been recruited from the remote Arctic base, hoping he would be permitted to fly a helicopter. If the chief designer favored him, he would get to fly something far better. In the United States, Project Mercury was well underway. America's plan to launch the first human being into space hopefully before the Soviets. The American press were introduced to seven new pilots, handsome men in their 30s, many of whom had impressive careers as military test pilots, as well as engineering degrees. All were college educated. America was selecting pilots based on their flying abilities, knowledge of aircraft, proficiencies, and education. The Soviet Union simply wanted men who were physically capable of surviving the journey regardless of whatever rigorous challenges might await them in orbit around the Earth. After all, doctors in both the United States and the Soviet Union admitted that they weren't entirely sure what would happen to the human body during launch or up in the weightless environment of outer space. Some doctors speculated that up in space, without the pull of gravity, the human eyeball might drift upwards, no longer needing the support of the bone and muscle around it, and it might even change shape, causing blurred vision and perhaps even blindness. And what would happen during the violent g-forces that the human body would experience during re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere? Even so, theoretically, most doctors said it was at least possible to survive the journey. The year was now 1961, and von Braun was working on a ballistic missile known as the Redstone, a well-oiled machine 
but still smaller and much weaker than the Soviet R-7. It could, potentially, be used to put a man in space. The Redstone had many successes, and also a few failures. Von Braun was ambitious, but he was also cautious by nature, and vividly remembered, even relished, the Navy's mortifying public humiliation when their own rocket fell over and exploded on the launch pad, with the world watching. If the same scenario were to take place with a man on board, it would be a thousand times worse, and his superiors at NASA would surely lay the blame at his feet. The cold, calculating, murderous Nazi who sacrificed an American life just for his own ambitions of space travel. With NASA's Mercury astronauts in training, though, and America desperate to win a victory in the space race, the Soviet Union had to act swiftly. If they were going to beat the Americans, they may not be able to take all the precautions they would have liked to, but they were determined to send human beings into the cosmic ocean. They had relied on robots and Sputniks long enough. Now it was time for a human being to personally answer the question that had fascinated Korolyov since his youth. What was it that existed beyond the clouds, beyond the pale blue sky, where the air became so thin no plane could stay aloft? It was spring in the Soviet Union now, less than a week remained before the Soviet scheduled launch attempt, and there were only two candidates left, a pilot named German Titov and the 27-year-old Yuri. Korolyov was impressed by German Titov's superior abilities as a pilot, and he seemed to be the clear choice. Korolyov's right-hand man, a Soviet general, believed Titov to be physically stronger as well. But Premier Khrushchev was not satisfied. The other candidate, Yuri, had grown up on a collective farm not far from the front lines during World War II. A Nazi soldier had almost shot Yuri's mother during a childhood when she had tried to protect young Yuri's brother from an angry soldier in uniform. Khrushchev had come from humble beginnings, growing up in poverty himself. If successful, Yuri's narrative could vindicate Khrushchev's narrative. It would be proof that in the Soviet Union, even the son of a peasant farmer could grow up to become a national hero. Yet so many in the Soviet space program seemed to favor Germain Titov. Khrushchev scoffed at the idea. He said, quote, German? What kind of name is German? Is he a German? And so, for reasons no more substantive than the man's place of birth and his first name, the most well-qualified candidate was rejected. Yuri would fly in space in just a few days' time, with German Titov as his backup. On a visit to his mother's house, sipping a cup of warm tea, Yuri mentioned that he had been doing some work for the government and that they would soon be sending him on a trip for work. Will you be going far? His mother asked. Yes, very far, Yuri said. The day before the launch, technicians examined a new modified rocket from the R-7 series, a booster larger and more powerful than the one that launched Sputnik. The rocket was raised into a vertical position, ready for launch not far from a place called Tiratum. Officially, Tiratum was a, an obscure railroad station, but it wasn't far from a secret launch complex on the plains of Kazakhstan. Today, this facility is called Baikonur. Under the Soviet Union, its location was so concealed, 
it wasn't even on any of the maps. That night, Korolyov struggled to sleep. His nation's place in history, his career, his life, and the future of the space age was at stake. And now, another man's life was on the line. Sputnik had reached orbit by only the narrowest of margins. The first barking dog that they launched into space was dead within hours. Many engineers estimated the chances of Yuri surviving the launch at just 50-50. The flight would be controlled entirely from the ground. Soviet authorities didn't know what might happen to Yuri once he was in space. He might start behaving erratically and go insane. He might pass out, or worse yet, he might try to defect and land in a foreign country. It was all just too great a risk. The controls on the spacecraft would be locked, to be opened only in an emergency by a three-digit code that almost no one, including Yuri, was to know. Yet as the pilot walked out to the launch pad in his shining orange flight suit and helmet, and was strapped tightly into the cramped metal sphere atop the rocket, one man at the launch tower, in a position of authority, was overwhelmed with emotion. His name was Ivanovsky, and he was the designer of the Vostok capsule that Yuri was sitting in. Ivanovsky was one of only three men, including Korolyov himself, who knew the three-digit code. The penalties for divulging the code could be serious indeed. It might even cost Ivanovsky his life. Yet the smiling 27-year-old pilot in front of him was gladly risking his own life. Ivanovsky leaned inside the almost claustrophobic environment of the metal sphere and whispered, Yuri, the code is 325. Then the hatch was closed, bolted, and sealed shut. Sitting in the control center that morning, Korolyov was tired, but with his heart beating rapidly. His doctors had warned him against working such long hours. Physically and emotionally exhausted, he was now experiencing chest pains. But he was determined to press on. Rocket launches in the United States had always proceeded with the stereotypical final countdown. Korolyov thought that was a pretentious and vain bit of American theatrics. When technicians confirmed that all systems were functioning, Korolyov hit a switch on the control panel. Yuri shouted out, Payakali. Let's go. Pressure several times the force of gravity pressed down on him as the rocket soared into the upper atmosphere, the flaming engines roaring thunderously underneath him. The rocket performed beautifully. Then, suddenly, inside the sphere, all was quiet. His body felt as light as a feather. Yuri Alexievich Gagarin had become the first man in space the world's first cosmonaut, a word derived from the Greek word cosmos, meaning universe, and nautes, meaning sailor, a sailor of the universe. As sunlight shone in through the tiny porthole, continents and oceans became visible beneath him. Yuri said, quote, The flight is continuing well. I can see the earth. I can see almost everything. I feel splendid. The first human beings to fly in space were not authors, journalists, poets, or even scientists. They often struggled to articulate their experience. Famous astronomer, the late Carl Sagan, once said, quote, If you look at a picture of the Earth from space, 
or if you talk to someone who has been in space. One of the most striking aspects of the view of the Earth from a few hundred kilometers up is just how thin the atmosphere is. There's just this faint blue aura that surrounds the Earth. It has a distinct appearance of fragility, and it is fragile. The thickness of the atmosphere compared to the size of the Earth is about the thickness of a coat of shellac on a globe of the Earth. The Soviet Union proudly announced that they had placed the first human being into orbit around the Earth. Yuri's mother heard the news for the first time, just like everyone else in the Soviet Union, while listening to the radio. Yuri completed one full orbit of the Earth in just over 90 minutes. He didn't go blind, he wasn't driven insane, and he didn't defect. Now seeing the continental borders of Africa and the Indian Ocean, he knew he would soon be back over the Soviet Union. The spacecraft automatically fired its liquid-fueled engines to prepare for re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. The metal pod then began vibrating, and he slowly fell back to Earth. Yuri saw bright and colorful flames outside his tiny porthole. Officially, he experienced 8 Gs, or 8 times the force of gravity on his body, though he would later claim that he experienced 10 Gs, perhaps more. Either way, he miraculously remained conscious. Back in the atmosphere, his craft began shaking and spinning even more violently than it had been before. Two pieces of the craft that were supposed to have separated in outer space were actually still stuck together. The control station in Kiratum told him not to eject, that he was still at too great of an altitude. Yuri ejected anyway, thousands of feet above the ground at an unknown altitude. On a rural potato farm that afternoon, a confused mother and her daughter watched as a figure landed by parachute off in the distance. As the person approached them in his strange orange flight suit and large white helmet, dragging a parachute behind him, the mother and young girl were scared, slowly backing away cautiously. Flipping open the visor on his helmet, Yuri smiled at them as he walked over, saying, Don't be afraid. I'm a Soviet citizen just like you. I've come from outer space. I must find a telephone to call Moscow. Out the window of a local school, children saw a massive cannonball crash to the ground, flinging dust and dirt up into the air. Boys and girls rushed out the front doors with their teachers chasing after them. The Soviet educators tried to keep the children from climbing on the black, scorched metal sphere lying on the ground. And then, out on the horizon, a figure appeared walking towards them as the children watched intently. When they finally beheld him standing over them, he smiled at them and said, Kids, let's get to know each other. I'm the first. The first spaceman in the world. Lots of people will be here any minute, and we'll all have our pictures taken together. But just a few minutes later, several black cars arrived, and men donning suits and ties climbed out, grabbing the young pilot by the arms and thrusting him into the back seat before driving away. Days later, Stepping off an aircraft in his Soviet Air Force uniform, walking along a regal red carpet, the young Yuri smiled as Premier Khrushchev stepped forward to greet him, embracing him in a warm hug. At the back of the crowd stood Korolyov, watching silently, staring with everyone else at the young celebrity that had returned from space. The handsome young Yuri was now an international celebrity, the most famous man on the face of the earth. A massive parade was held in Moscow's Red Square, a celebration that had not been seen since the festivities that marked the end of World War II. 
Korolyov had hoped to attend, but on the way there, his car broke down. As millions in Moscow cheered the hero, standing beside Premier Khrushchev, Korolyov stood leaning against the side of his car, stranded on the side of the road. He could send a man into space, but he didn't have the parts or the tools to single-handedly repair a broken fan belt. But Korolyov had firmly secured the Soviet Union's place on the world stage. As the dominant preeminent power in outer space, the United States' national prestige had been tarnished yet again. And von Braun, for all his brilliance as an engineer, was still just second-rate. His cautious nature had been a key factor in delaying the launch of America's first Mercury astronaut. Despite all of this, just a few weeks later, the second human being in history was launched into space. Alan Shepard. But Shepard did not orbit the Earth like Yuri. It was a brief suborbital flight to the very edge of space. He was sent aloft by a modest 80-foot-tall ballistic missile, the Redstone. Yuri's flight had lasted about a hundred minutes, taking him literally around the world. Alan Shepard's flight had lasted just 15 minutes before his capsule deployed its parachute and splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean, some 300 miles from where it took off. But he had made it, and proved that the United States would continue to follow in the footsteps of the Soviet Union, even though they were still very far behind. Alan Shepard proved something else, too. As a pilot who was allowed the ability to manually control his spacecraft, he established that weightlessness wouldn't have any negative impact on a human being's ability to pilot their craft in this strange new environment. In this, he was the first to do so. But the political fallout from Yuri Gagarin's historic flight lingered. The damage had been done. Four years after Sputnik, and the United States was still losing the space race. President Eisenhower had seemed senile and out of touch. The new President John F. Kennedy now seemed young and inexperienced. Yet the new administration was quietly engaged in talks with NASA Administrator James Webb about how America could catch up with and hopefully overtake the Soviet Union in space. Though such a goal seemed far-fetched, to say the least. It wouldn't be wise to make any near-term promises on space exploration, but perhaps if NASA could buy itself some time. It was agreed that, in a few years, America stood a very slim chance of becoming the first nation in history to send an astronaut to orbit the moon, though the Soviet Union would probably do it first. America stood a slightly better chance of becoming the first nation in history to land a human being on the moon, assuming that was possible, the Soviet Unions had sent an impactor probe to the moon, but no robotic probes had yet made a soft landing on the moon's surface, and there were no photos of the moon's surface either. No one really knew whether von Braun's childhood dream could be made into a reality. Even the Soviet Union didn't have the technology to send their cosmonauts on a voyage to the moon, or even for cosmonauts to escape Earth orbit. In 1961, Astronomers knew very little about the moon. They knew it had no atmosphere, and that it was one-fourth the size of the Earth. They knew it had little to no bodies of liquid water. Observations from Earth-bound telescopes showed that the moon had been pulverized by asteroids billions of years ago, mostly during a period called the Late Heavy Bombardment, hence the reason the 
lunar surface is pockmarked in craters to this day. There were some at NASA who believed that the impacts left behind a lot of fine-grained dust, and that any large, heavy metal craft landing on its surface would be liable to sink into the dust like quicksand, and the simple task of landing on the moon might prove to be fatal for the astronauts who attempted it. They might be buried alive. Despite all the unknowns about space travel, at a time when the United States had logged just 15 minutes flight time in outer space, President Kennedy had to say or do something to retain America's dignity on the world stage. So he stood before Congress and made a speech that shocked America. We take an additional risk by making it in full view of the world. But as shown by the feet of astronaut Shepard, this very risk enhances our stature when we are successful. But this is not merely a race. Space is open to us now, and our eagerness to share its meaning is not governed by the efforts of others. We go into space because whatever mankind must undertake, free men must fully share. I therefore ask the Congress, above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities, to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. We propose to accelerate the development of the appropriate lunar spacecraft. We propose to develop alternate liquid and solid fuel boosters, much larger than any now an being developed, to send astronauts on a more than 200,000-mile journey away from their home planet on a voyage lasting over a week to attempt to land on the surface of an alien world. President Kennedy had written a massive check, and it would be up to the scientists, engineers, and pilots of the United States to cash it. There were many who believed, and perhaps rightfully so, that cashing that check could involve sacrificing American lives. Von Braun would get the chance to make the journey a reality. After a series of humiliating defeats, America's politicians were getting serious about space travel. While there were so many with doubts, Von Braun knew that he personally could construct the rocket that would send human beings across the gulf of space to a new frontier. Later that summer, NASA launched a second American to the edge of space in another suborbital flight. That astronaut's name was Gus Grissom, and he would later go on to play a pivotal role in America's space program in fulfilling President Kennedy's bold promise. Grissom named his spacecraft Liberty Bell, after the cracked copper bell which sat atop a steeple in America's Independence Hall in Philadelphia, a symbol of American freedom from tyranny and our democracy. Liberty Bell 7 was similar to the craft that carried Alan Shepard into space, but with a few new modifications. Shepard's craft had only a primitive latch to seal the hatch closed. Grissom's craft had a hatch with explosive bolts, a feature that had been standard for years on most military aircraft. 
And so, after another rocket launch, another American was outside the atmosphere, gazing down at the curvature of the large, blue, cloud-covered planet beneath. Like Shepard, Grissom also controlled his craft manually, though he found the controls to be a bit sluggish in comparison to the simulators he practiced in on Earth. After just a few minutes in space, his body was slammed with the G-forces of re-entry before his parachute deployed, dropping him gently in the Atlantic Ocean. It was a flawless mission. Shortly thereafter, Grissom heard the rotary blades of helicopters circling outside his craft, the recovery team. Then suddenly, bam! Grissom glanced up to see the hatch thrust off his capsule and a waterfall of seawater spilling into the cramped cockpit. Abandoning ship and diving into the ocean swells, Grissom found himself adrift as the helicopter hovering above him tried to hook a cable onto the capsule, which was now rapidly taking on water. Grissom's suit was still filled with air. For the moment, he was able to float, but the air was slowly escaping, making his spacesuit less buoyant with each passing minute as he treaded water in the open ocean. Even when it was totally dry, the spacesuit itself weighed 20 pounds. In the water, it wasn't any lighter. The helicopter pilot tried to lift the capsule out of the ocean, to drain the water, but it was all just too heavy. As the helicopter's engine strained in a tug of war against the capsule, now partially submerged, a red warning light began flashing. The hovering helicopter was now at risk of engine failure. The strain was just too great, and Grissom's head was starting to slip beneath the waves as he treaded water. Finally, the capsule was released to sink like a stone in water over three miles deep, and at long last, an exhausted Grissom was thrown a lifeline and rescued. In all his time as a pilot, Liberty Bell 7 was the only craft Grissom had ever lost. In the days and weeks after the flight, Grissom was grilled by the press. Many thought that Grissom panicked in the claustrophobic environment of the capsule and blew the hatch too soon. There were some who said that Grissom was to blame for the ill-fated end of his voyage in space, yet Grissom himself maintained that the spacecraft's hatch had blown on its own, a technical malfunction. Spacecraft might have been new inventions, but military aircraft had explosive bolts on their hatches for years. They had never been a problem, at least not until now. The plunger to activate the explosive bolts had been hit with such force it was believed that it would leave a bruise on the astronaut's hand. This was later confirmed when another Mercury astronaut, Wally Schirra, hit the plunger on his own control panel, blowing the hatch off his space capsule and leaving a painful bruise on his palm. Grissom's hand wore no such bruise when doctors examined him after the flight. The second American in space had carried out a flawless mission, and to top it all off, nearly drowned in the Atlantic Ocean when his spacecraft malfunctioned. The evidence was lost at the bottom of the Atlantic, and now he had to listen to whispers from the press that he was a panicking coward who lost his spacecraft and nearly killed himself in the process. Even his children were bullied in school for their father's perceived failure. It had been the first spaceflight after President Kennedy's historic pledge. The spacecraft was lost, and the astronaut occupant nearly died and America still hadn't yet managed to put a man into Earth orbit. To make matters worse, Korolyov and his team were being pressured by Khrushchev to orchestrate another historic spaceflight to upstage the pioneering Mercury astronauts. Korolyov was about to deliver. 
At best, it seemed that America would have to live with being subpar, while a totalitarian nation with nuclear weapons boasted one propaganda victory after another. But then again, the narrative of human history, and spaceflight history in particular, rarely transpires without a few plot twists.